You're listening to the Surgeons of Horror podcast. Where's Craven? The early years. Episode one: The Last House on the Left. Welcome to the first instalment of the Surgeons of Horror podcast. Its purpose is to look at horror films, dissecting them one screen legend at a time. Our first horror legend and focus for the upcoming seasons will be director, writer, producer Wes Craven, who sadly passed away and gave us, the team at Surgeons of Horror Podcast, the impetus to gather ourselves together and look back at his career and the impact he had on the horror film franchise. In order to successfully do this, though, we need to bring together a team of horror aficionados who um, will form the surgical team each episode. So let me introduce you. First up is yours truly, Paul Farrell, lead surgeon and host to the series of the podcast. I'm a self-confessed horror freak who grew up drawn to the dark work of the silver screen and threw myself into the arena absorbing as much of the genre as possible with relish and glee. My specialist interests are classic horror from the Universal Studios to British horror outfit Hammer Productions, through to modern highlights such as It Follows and Oculus and pretty much everything in between. You name it, there's a high chance that I've delved into the film in question. I also have a particular penchant for psychological horrors in particular. Joining me each episode at the Operating Theatre, and in no particular order, is Chief Surgical Technician Ben Skinner. Hello. Hey, Ben. Um, ben, he's uh, literally going to get into the guts of the subject to see what we can find out. But be warned, he does tend to go a little off-tangent and is prone to discovering random objects that may or may not be affiliated with the subject in question. Um, what kind of horror films are you into, buddy? What's like? Uh, definitely the... I'd say the 70s and the 80s, the slasher stuff, like the classic slasher stuff. Yeah. Which is kind of, I went back to after the, with Scream and all the, the yes. naughty ones that came along. Yes. Impersonators. That was my, like, window into the world and then went back and revisited and discovered that they were a lot better. Yes. Um, yeah. And they were the ones that set that trend. So very much that slasher, classic slasher. Yeah. Stuff. Cool, cool. Yes, and so also joining us in the, on the surgical table um, is our head nurse, Miles Davies. Um, his title's not Thanks to be... Thanks for that. <laughs> no worries. He's actually dressed as a nurse. <laughs> there he is. Yes, I, uh, character maybe went a bit too far with the, with the Andran. Um, you, look, your title's not to be scoffed at. If there's anyone that can, uh, tr- you can truly rely upon at the operating table, it's Miles. Um, you need to have someone with an arsenal of knowledge at the ready when performing any operation. And Miles' sense of horror and his innate ability to draw on any subject to bring on the goods in order to make sure the surgical procedure is successful is paramount. Um, so your specialist interests I put here are ghost stories, slasher films, and horrors with twists or unexpected turns like absentia. Mm. Was there anything else you'd like to add to that canon? Um, I mean, I, I grew up watching horror, so that's been my major sort of choice of movies over the years. Mm. I mean, I started watching um, horror, the Hammer Horrors and the Amicus stuff and the yeah. Universal Monster Story, uh, Monster Films yeah. uh, on um, TV when I was a kid. And then basically, as soon as, on the advent of video and VCRs, um, we were, me and my family were constantly, every Saturday night, 
go down to the video store and get out a slasher horror yeah. film. Yeah. And for some reason, they, they decided it was a great idea for a nine-year-old and an <laughs> 11-year-old to sit there watching uh, Toby Hooper and uh, Friday the 13th yeah. and all of those great slasher horror films of the 80s. The video nasties. Uh, well, that's the thing. Say. Yeah, I think I was the same too. I seemed, I think I had this conversation with you off, off, uh, off record, but I, I seem to remember watching horror when I was really young, like eight or nine or something. So I would watch it with my parents. So, yeah. It was like a Saturday night thing and they yeah. didn't really do a shit. shit. If it was, yeah. as far as they were concerned, if it was available on VHS, and there was nothing wrong with it. <laughs> so nice. my sister would go down, and she'd go, just, she'd go straight to the horror film section and just pick up the latest <laughs> Russia horror films. And it was always her choice. So most of the time, yeah. we ended up with these really obscure sort of slasher horror films or whatever video horror that she, she, she liked the cover of the, um, the cover art for. Yeah, yeah. And um, so we yeah, were watching was, this, yeah. Cover, the cover made a big mm. difference. Like, it just goes to show how important it was to design mm. those VHS covers. Because you oh, just yeah. go there with your mates and you pick whichever one of them looked yeah. the scariest or the most fucked up. Although, yeah. although sometimes you can be deceived with cover and be incredibly yeah. let down by uh, the Extra results. Extra always had the best, <laughs> best cover. Uh-uh. And yeah, I don't know if you've ever seen the film. It's no. fucking awful. <laughs> A low, low budget alien film. So, yeah. Oh, fantastic. And Parasite with Demi Moore. It was absolutely terrible. <laughs> So. And something like Hellraiser, when you see Hellraiser, oh, Hellraiser when you're like 10 years old, and mm. you're just like, I want that. Yeah. Like, yeah. No, I know sure. it's, that I know it's my interest with Clive Barker. And, and oh, yeah. That. So and then I started reading his book. Same, same. But, um, Absolutely. I, I mean, like, I, I watch, now I'm a little more discerning with horror, so I kind of, I hear about horror, yep. and I'm, I follow a lot of horror Facebook sites that they kind of, they highlight movies that are coming out. Yes. So it follows as one that piqued my interest very yeah. early in the distribution stage, or like they, I don't think they had a distributor yet, and they were already championing that. Yeah. And same with um, uh, the work of uh, what's his name, Mike Flanagan, who did the Oculus and yeah, Absentia. yeah. Uh, yeah. Some, I remember reading an article about Absentia, and just uh, this weekend filmmaker just made this film in his spare time. Yes. Genius, yeah, yeah, yeah. and um, obviously then sort of went off and did Oculus. Yes, after that. that's right. Oh, I love that film. Directors, great um, film. Yeah, absolutely amazing. Mine. Oh, it's uh, awesome, mine awesome, film. awesome film. So, look, I mean, like you know, there's there's e- essence there that you know horror isn't dead. You know, um, yeah. there are echoes of of or nods to um, the film greats. You know, the icons, and, and it follows is a big example of that with Halloween. And and John Carpenter's um, films. And all the Mumblecore guys oh, as well. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's right. So there's yeah. plenty there, but which is why we've set this up, really. We wanted to kind of, not only because we're, we're paying homage to Wes Craven, as I said, who's passed away, but also, you know, to start looking at these um, legends in horror and kind of, you know, reference them um, and how uh, modern horror filmmakers are actually kind of nodding to them as well. Mm. Um, so we're going to dive straight into... Um, the first subject, which was Wes Craven's debut feature, The Last House on the Left. Um, now, just a bit of background. Um, Craven was brought up as an evangelical Christian. He um, always felt like he didn't fit in and was something of an outsider as he grew up. His father walked out on the family when Craven was just three years old. Um, and he would, um, his father would actually die of a heart attack about a year later. Um, his early life was a mixture of like this anger and death, and um, which uh, this kind of feeling never really left him throughout his life. Um, he would go on to graduate with a double major in English uh, with psychology. 
And after several like teaching positions, his dream of getting into the film industry would force a wedge between his wife and family. When he quit teaching, it would be one step too far and this would end up in divorce. Um, it was around this time he landed a connection and tutorship with editor Roger Murphy that Craven would cross paths with Sean Cunningham. And this is important because he would end up editing a film, they would end up editing a film together called Together, um, which was a sex ed doco that gained success in the Grindhouse environment and would pave the way for Craven's first directorial feature, The Last House on the Left. Um, Hallmark Productions were keen on investing in a horror movie and they were also keen for Cunningham and Craven to produce something for them. Um, and this was the movie that launched a, a reign of terror on movie theatres, was one of the critics' uh, quotes that came out when the film came out. Mark Commode, who's a known British film critic, um, would also talk about censorship around this film um, in, a, you know, in a fairly recent article, saying the film has always caused a furore. I remember that during the first year it ran in the US, people actually rushed the projection booths trying to get to the print and destroy it. Theatre owners were threatened, there was a fist fight in one theatre, a heart attack in another, and reports of grown men weeping. This, this, was, this was what was happening at the time. Weeping. It was like 1972 when the film it was almost released. sounds very William Castle-esque when, <laughs> when you say about these things that are occurring. Yeah. Is that just part of the marketing campaign for it, or did this actually happen? It's hard to know, isn't it? Because like, like, even like when, you listen to, uh, the, the, when you listen to the commentaries, audio commentaries on the films and stuff... Um, you know, they, it's almost like they're ramping it up a bit. And there's points in the there's points that happen in the film where you start where they've discussed it, and you start wondering, is that just adding to the you know to the hype around it? I don't know. Like they had the this is based on a true story or something. Yeah, yeah. Incidents. That's part of them fucking with your head. Oh yeah, that's right. Get, put you in that. It's the Cohen did it years later with Fargo. Yeah, that's right. You yeah. know, it just puts you in a different mindset. Of course. Of, yeah. Oh, this was a true story. And the way it's shot too, you know, it's got that documentary feel around yeah. it, which was very the much hyper real. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. and you just you, you so desensitised to things now. Yeah. Like, well, you got to you got to just put yourself in their shoes and. You know, you go back and you, mm. you know those early films and people thought the train was coming out of the screen. So it's <laughs> it's just like true. there's just so many things that we have seen now that they had weren't exposed to back then. So Absolutely. you can kind of see how they were. And they wrapped it up with the trailer campaign as well. It's that line with the "Pray it's not real." Yeah, yeah, yeah. Real. Say it again and again. Or like, yeah, that's it. Yeah, yeah that's great. Yeah. Keep telling yourself great. it's only a movie. Yeah, it's only right. a movie. Right. It's only a movie. And that's, uh, that, that's one of the it's most great. famous lines. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's yeah. like in no in space, no one can hear you scream. Absolutely. So. All right. Well, look, let's let's talk about the journey. So the plot line of the film itself, um, as quickly as I can, because we want to get into the nuts and bolts of it. Um, the film opens at the Collingwoods um, house where daughter. Mary is planning to attend a concert with her friend Felice um, for her 17th birthday. Her parents, Estelle and John, are a little concerned about her friendship with Felice and the place that she is going to, and even her attire. Before she leaves, they give her a peace symbol necklace, which what she wears. So there's this whole kind of like very kind of 70s hippie kind of conversation going around. She's not wearing a bra, and it's oh like, my god, look at those nipples! It's like, look at them. <laughs> Poke your eye out with those things. <laughs> the dad, the dad's just. Where are you going? Yeah, You're going to see bloodlust. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, the dialogue is is a little less uh, less than to be yeah, desired, yeah. I think. Um, so, but we're getting this kind of early impression of of innocence, I guess, mm -hmm. and you know, and uh, a woman um, awakening um, into the world. So, um, 
So we get, uh, we go then to like, uh, and even though I think I've cut cut the uh, scene out of my notes, but there's a bit where uh, Felice and Mary, Mary are talking, and she's talking about becoming a woman, and you know, yeah. does this whole kind of thing like that, just to labour the point. A bit of exposition going yeah. on. Oh, I, I didn't know you back then. No, I changed a great deal. Yeah. <laughs> now. Yeah, so it's, I think it's fair to say that the script, the script is fairly, fairly clunky. Um, but um, we then kind of have uh, Felice and Marie then go into this kind of into the city for the concert, and on the way they hear a news report on the car radio of a recent prison escape involving criminals Krug and Stillo, a rapist. Sorry, his name's Krug Stillo, a rapist and serial killer. His son Junior, Sadie, who's a promiscuous psychopath and sadist, and apparently even kicked a dog to death, was uh, which I thought was hilarious, and then um, and Fred. But that's it. It's, it's like yeah. the, if you want to make audiences really feel hatred towards a character, just let them like punish an animal. Like, yeah, you know, that's always, always, always about the animal. Yeah, yeah. That's a, it, it, train spotting when they're talking about Tommy dying. Yes. And they went and they lean over and they go, the kitten was all right though. <laughs> It's like, well, that's fine. It's so it's true. The audience are just thinking about the They don't give a shit that this guy's died. <laughs> that's right. They're just worried about the kitten. That's <laughs> so, so true. So, like, we round, the, to round out the uh, the quartet of our kind of um, escaped um, convicts um, is a guy called um, Weasel, and I've forgotten his full name, Fred, Fred Weasel Podowski, who's a child molester, peeping time, and murderer. Um, as luck would have it, Mary and Felice bump into Junior, the son, whilst looking to score some marijuana. Junior takes them to the apartment where they are trapped by the criminals. Phyllis tries to escape, then reason um, with the criminals, but she fails and is then gang raped by Krug, Weasel, and Sadie. And there's that kind of, you don't actually see no, anything off screen. Off screen, you just see Mary's shot mm. kind of response to what we're hearing in the background. It's all, very, it's all a bit blase, isn't it, really? Yeah. I mean, yeah. By, by, in terms of, not the, not the word caring too much about, like, realism but no. you know in that kind of moment I was just like okay this is happening this is <laughs> yeah. like all of a sudden with, with yeah. much struggle going on and what's, what's interesting about this though is the way and, and this is I think is a really important point with the movie and its success is that they um, leading up to that in- incident um, you kind of see these guys um, kind of falling around being yeah. stupid you know and, and, and you kind of start identifying with the comedy or their comical Humanizing them, I guess, and then and and as easy as that, they kind of switch yeah. and make it you know, quite quite real. Um, we cut to the, the uh, while this was all happening. We kind of keep um, going back to the parents' place, and they you know they're getting ready for this surprise yeah. birthday party thing that's happening as well. Um, but then in the next scene, uh, we get uh, Mary and Felice, and they're being taken into the woods. So they're kind of you know shoved into the boot of the car and then uh, driven off into the woods. Um, and as they come out, Mary recognises that she's near the road that's near her home. Um, and this is where the criminal, uh, the criminals begin to get a bit ugly, and they kind of get Felice to, they force Felice to pee in her pants. And then they get Mary and Felice to have sex with each other. And Sadie performs oral sex on a weeping Mary. Um, I've written here that uh, Craven did often wonder whether it was right or not to shoot this scene. Um, it is kind of quite gratuitous in the way it's handled. Um, and Sandra was actually Sandra Cassell, who uh, sorry, who plays um, Mary, was actually genuinely quite scared. And there's a bit where um, 
Lucy, who plays Felice, would was talking her through it, saying it's okay, there's no one else around here. All of that was actually improvised. It wasn't actually scripted. Right, I can which see that, yeah. makes you kind of really start to think it's quite a harrowing thing. Yeah, going on. I wonder she how much. Did, like, I actually did get the impression that she was really generally yeah. afraid for her life. I yeah. mean, that's the thing. You're in a low budget film, and then this shit's happening. And yeah. even though it's in the script, and you know it's coming, it's like. Oh, so it is happening. But yeah, like, yeah, I'm yeah. sure that in the script it was very non-specific. So yeah. it's kind of like, and then they rape her. And yeah, blah, exactly. Blah, blah. Yeah. So That's when the it. cameras are rolling and you're, they're just there, and you know, you gotta trust the director. There's gonna be a lot of trust going on there. And, and bearing in mind, like, and we'll, you know, Wes is just learning, mm. learning on the, you know, on the fly as so, he's doing this. Yeah. So like, he's probably, well, he's definitely not uh, the skilled director that he went on to become um, and there's a lot of stuff that he does that's just kind of letting the camera roll essentially and, mm, and yeah. just allowing the, the actors to improvise when when you do that it, allow, it, it can easily swing in the wrong direction that's right and I question whether that was happening at this time as, as if like the reins were let loose a bit I'm sure she was so, just like just praying he would cold cut like it uh, yeah yeah, yeah. oh yeah that's right okay so then um Felice then tries to run off and, and she wants to, do, to give Mary a chance to escape. So uh, as she's running off, she's chased by Sadie and Weasel through the woods um, while Junior stays back to guard Mary. And Mary's trying to gain Junior's trust and she gives him her necklace. She calls him Willow for some reason. Um, and apparently um, in that scene, apparently uh, Sandra was struggling to get the scene right. And um, Schiffler, who plays uh, Junior, um, actually apparently threatened to throw her off a cliff if she didn't get it right, kind of picked her up and held her over a cliff or on the cliffside. Um, and this was supposedly to invoke genuine fear in her performance. And the next take is the one you see in the film where she's kind of pleading with him to come with her and, and escape. So this is what I mean. Like, I'm really seriously, as I, when you learn this stuff, I'm seriously watching this thinking, oh, what's going on here? Um, so then Felice, as I said, she's run off and... Um, and um, and she's at that point of freedom. She can see the road ahead, but she's cornered by Krug, uh, who suddenly appears brandishing a machete. And uh, Sadie and Weasel catch up. And then we have that really gruesome scene where Felice is then stabbed to death by Weasel. Um, and then Sadie reaches into Felice's wounds and she starts pulling out her intestines. Yeah, that was just... Whoa. Yeah, that was a quick, yeah. It was a quick cut. Like, it was a quick that, cut, but... but... Yeah, it was a bit, bit gruesome, to say the least. Um, and, then, uh, and then we get... Um, going back to Mary and she convinces Junior to let her go but Krug stops them um, and then Sadie and Weasel present Felice's uh, severed hand and drop it onto the floor um, Krug proceeds to then they pin you know, Mary down and he proceeds to carve his name into her chest and then he rapes her um, and at this point the, the criminals have definitely lost their call um, and what they're doing is like no control at all. It's completely lost. And that scene as well is a bit, you know, to kind of continue this theme of, of this, you know, pressure that's going on. Sandra, who plays Mary, like, it's, um, like, uh, Krug was, the guy that plays Krug, uh, David Hess, even said that, you know, the, the, um, he could sense that she was really, really genuinely scared in that moment. You know, and it's not, she's not acting by that point. Mm. She's really, really scared and was fearful. Um, and there's that bit, like a real close-up shot, and he's like drooling, slobbering on her face. Oh, that was gets crazy, yeah. Oh, yeah. 
Um, I think that was probably the most brutal shot of the whole thing. Yeah, and I think that, that, that was the one with... Slabbering face right yeah. to That's right, yeah. It was yeah. pretty... I mean, it's invasive, isn't it? Alone, yeah. Like, the act alone is invasive. Yeah. But to, to actually yeah. um, see that kind of... Your own... The saliva on her... Um, yeah, it just kind of adds to that shock of it all, really. Um, but then, um, so then, like, Marie kind of gets up, she vomits, she quietly says, like, a bit of a prayer, and then she starts walking into that, into the lake. Um, and Krug just uh, pulls out a gun and he shoots her, killing her. Um, and they walk off, leaving her body floating in the lake. Um, and it's interesting because, you know, as we're used to modern films, you're used to, like, the young kind of people surviving some kind of ordeal. Um, hint as to what happens in the remake so then like a you know marie um, has been you know killed off as i said um and then we have uh, we follow uh, the the criminals you know as they krug sadie and weasel they wash and change out their bloody clothes and then when they're in their new attire they then go to uh, the collingwoods coincidentally end up at the collingwoods house with the parents um and they're masquerading as as traveling salesmen uh, Marie's parents, um, you know, let them stay overnight. But Junior exposes their identity when uh, Mary's parents, um, when sorry, when Mary's mother sees that he's wearing that, you know, that peace symbol mm. necklace. Um, Estelle also finds a blood-soaked clothing in their luggage because she goes and kind of does a bit of, a, you know, investigation. Um, and she and her husband rush into the woods where they find Mary's body on the bank of the lake. They carry her body back to the house, and this is where the pendulum swings as they exact revenge against the crooks. Uh, we have that weird uh, dream sequence that follows, where Weasel kind of wakes up, and the parents are dressed in kind of like you know the Surgeons, surgical yeah. outfit, and yeah, they that was cool. go to chisel his teeth out, and then he kind of wakes up. I was like, ah, oh, oh, yeah, <laughs> which was kind of yeah, it was kind of interesting. But you know, the good thing about the reason to mention that is that. Um, this is an early indication, as I said, first Craven film. It's an early indication of Cra- uh, how Craven um, was conceived, conceiving of a story which would look into nightmares in particular. And as we know, uh, a Nightmare on Elm Street would be not so far down the track. Krug and yeah. Kruger. Exactly, the Krug yeah. and Kruger com- combination too. Um, so Estelle then, then we have like Estelle, the mother, um, seducing the weasel character. She leads him outside, and Weasel believes that he is scored when Estelle begins to suck his cock, and um, and then he suddenly to put it bluntly, yeah, exactly. <laughs> and then, but things turn sour when Estelle bites off his dick and leaves him to bleed to death. It's it's almost like it, it turns into like an R-rated Home Alone, doesn't it? <laughs> Towards the end, that is awesome. it's just I'm sure I'm sure Love that it. John Hughes would have would have thought about this when he was writing All right. that script. <laughs> If We're, only we could get Macaulay Culkin in there. <laughs> <laughs> Macaulay Culkin missed out a trick when he didn't bite off the uh, um, Joe Pesci's cock off. Yeah. Um, I'm so sure like, that was in the first draft. <laughs> it's a great band name. It was a soap. Joe Pesci's cock. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, uh, so uh, meanwhile, uh, Mary's father, John, takes his shotgun into the room where Krug and Sadie are sleeping. Um, Krug escapes into the living room and overpowers John but then is confronted by Junior, the son, who is brandishing a revolver and threatening to kill him. Krug, though, manipulates Junior into committing suicide. Um, and then Krug by is... Screaming by at screaming him. at him. Kill yourself! Kill yourself! Because <laughs> that works. 
every well it worked this time it worked this time yeah. but so, such was the power of his manipulation <laughs> of his son power of his shout and, yeah. <laughs> um, Krug is um, um, sorry then Krug goes to try and escape out of the room you know out of the front door but he's incapacitated by an electrocution kind of booby trap thing that was set up by John and his MacGyver skills. Kevin McAllister. Um, yeah, <laughs> I'm telling you. Sa- <laughs> Sa- just needed the montage music. Yes! Spot on. <laughs> Sadie then uh, rushes outside um, where she's tackled by Estelle. Um, John then back inside the house somehow is down in the cellar and he's brandishing a chainsaw. <laughs> um, is this, well, is so. this before um, Toe Pooper's Yes, it is. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Texas well. Chainsaw. Yeah, so Texas this, this chainsaw scene is probably... Two years later, I want to say. Yeah. So, um, yeah, it predates that, yeah. But, you know, Very slow stuff. wielding the chainsaw, though. Like, he was in no well, great hurry to... Um, there was... Um, <laughs> I think, have I written that here? That um, So he's brandishing the, this chainsaw, which he... Be- yeah, yeah. He begins to wield around off the crew. Um, yeah, I have written it down here. There, there were no safety measures in place for this scene and no choreography yeah, okay, involved. That explains it. Hence why... The, the gingerness to kind of go appro- approach um, crew. Um, these last scenes were all done in one take as well. Um, and David Hess actually talked about the, the, the lack of choreography. And he, if you actually rewatch it, um, the father, John, doesn't bring the chainsaw to him. He actually brings the chair up yeah. to the chainsaw. Um, <laughs> and, it, and they were talking about how they expected it to cut right through, and it just took forever to cut through the chair. <laughs> Hilarious. Um, so then we, uh, Sadie then, as I said, has escaped out the back from Estelle, um, but she then falls into the backyard swimming pool where, Say, uh, where then Estelle kind of runs up to her and then slits her throat with a knife nice. and kills her. Um, back inside, the sheriff arrives. So there's these cop characters that I didn't really mention because oh, they're yeah. a bit irrelevant. They're idiots. Yeah. yeah. Um, straight out of Smokey and the Bandit. And, yeah. and the deputy. Yeah, yeah. Or Karate Kid. Um, yeah. Was, uh, karate right. I, so much I, I did notice so that. So much yeah. so. Um, so they kind of arrive at the end just as John kills Krug with the chainsaw and then the deputy uh, who walks up and then removes the chainsaw from John's hands and that's where we close on the credits with the still of the parents so that's the movie that was the journey in a, in a, in a nutshell um, let's let's talk about all the characters kind of made up the piece and you know and the impact that they had so we had Mary Collingwood played by Sandra Cassell in this movie uh, I think uh, no she's she's titled credited as Sandra Cassell her real name is Sandra Peabody um, now she was she's like acted in a handful of like low budget kind of softcore movies and exploitation pictures uh, that were kind of made throughout the seventies. Her most notable role would be The Last House on the Left, but she was also in another movie called Teenage Hitchhikers, where she played a sassy girl named Bird. Um, Peabody actually kind of quit acting in the mid seventies, and she's now kind of working as a drama teacher and children's television writer apparently, and a producer in Portland, Oregon. Um, it was reported that Sandra was scared at the, of, of the guys in the movie, the three guys, the main criminals, and the cast. And actually, she actually walked off set before they were ready to shoot, only to be persuaded to come back. Mm. Um, and this was what I was kind of talking about, the in- intimidation factor that was set up. Even David Hess stuck, uh, he kind of, he became a bit method and he steered clear of, of the group. Um, and that made the scenes where he was with her even more kind of, you know, impactful you know mm. yeah you can kind of um, sense it for and sure. she was really intimidated by him in particular um yeah so I, I i just like when you kind of watch this stuff and read about it you just start to question the logic behind it like i'm i'm very much of this i've come from an acting directing background and 
I was always I'm always of the school of thought very similar to what Craven was doing here of just kind of adding free license for the actors to kind of mm. roll with it a bit but then like you kind of are a bit awakened to the impact that that could necessarily have mm. um, on the parties that are playing in the piece and I I wonder how damaging being in this movie was for her I mean I've, she's never well as far as I know has never spoken on any of the commentary stuff and come out and spoken about the impact it's had on her um, but yeah I do kind of wonder I mean like, as far as her role like she she comes across like convincing enough like she's you know this uh, playing this young teenager who's completely out of her her element and thrust into a world um, there was as I said a lot of impro improvised scenes and stuff within it and, like one that comes to my mind with her is is in the ice cream shop where just before they kind of go to score their their joint um, and there's like they're just randomly talking about what ice cream they're going to get yeah a lot of the film improv. feels like that though yeah. I mean and that just I guess that you're yeah. just used to that seeing that in the 70s stuff it's true yeah. like um it does have that improvised feel to it mm. but I wonder how much Craven was how much of that was planned and how much of it was just you know first movie kind of yeah not really having control of what was Off going on wanting to make a film and just went you know I've got a core idea for a script yeah let's just get I think so and, yeah and you guys that's a learning experience yeah. kind of want, want you to do this and you just come out of it so yeah, they're, they're, if you put it in his shoes like he's in the, he's in the opportunity to kind of create this film mm. that's been produced and you know a bit of money backed behind it and, and what just, was the distribution for this it would probably would have been just grindhouse cinemas yeah just, yeah it was like so the, the company behind it as long as you've got yeah. violence and tit and, yeah. and then that's pretty much all, all yeah, you yeah. really need to provide and so it's core story that's right and that's right. And the quality dialogue is not something that most Grindhouse fans are expecting to see. Yeah, that's what you got to remember. Yes, yeah, that's what you got to keep in mind watching it. Totally, mm. a lot of this, a lot of this. But I mean, part of it. I mean, part of that improvisation is it like it does ramp it up and it gives it a sense of hyper realism. Yeah. And it also ramps it up for the actors as well as you, it, they pick it up and it gets <laughs> gets even bigger and bigger and bigger until that's you right. know the rape scene is just fucking horrible oh. and it's just. Yeah. And even the violence towards with the parents exacting their revenge on the people, it's just this mad scrambled improvisation yeah. violence basically, which seems like like you see violence now and it's so stylized. Yeah, yeah. And you kind of know, okay, the bad guy's gonna, the good guy's gonna win, the bad guy's gonna lose, and they're gonna get their asses kicked in a spectacular way. Yeah. Um, this, this one, it's just like I don't know who's gonna win. Yeah, yeah. You know, but they're just scrambling for life, basically. Oh, yeah. Just, I'm half expecting the, the the good guys to lose at some yeah, stage because yeah. it just looks like it's gonna happen. Well, it, in a way, it does with, with mm. the girls being killed off, you know, yeah. early on, because you know that's what I was mean, uh, uh, meaning by my comment earlier about that's so like anti how Hollywood is now, mm. where you know you often got the young girls the, the one that survives yeah, and yeah, here we exactly. are about halfway through the film and they've been killed off and, and that's the difference between the, the remake and the um, yeah interesting um, I thought when I first saw, you know when I was re-watching it that how how I've become I guess conditionalised to that being the norm and here we all are facing something that wasn't of that it's funny because you know I mean you know that I've I've written a 80 slasher horror film basically yeah. I'm planning on making next year. Yeah, and um, one a part of you know going through this writing process because I originally had as every sort of movie, a slasher movie. There's always the female characters, usually the 
the lead who survives at yes. the end. Yes. And part of my journey when I was writing my film was, um, do I make that female live? Yeah. And I went, no, I'm going to kill her off. And then the hero turned into somebody, somebody completely different. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And so, uh, and the person that lived was somebody I never expected to live at the beginning. Yes. It was just like, and you, the audiences will not expect her to get killed off. No, that's right. And that's right. Um, so yeah. it's it's become, you know, the norm that the... the I know, that's, and that's, that's why people need to shake yeah. it up, you know. There needs to be that kind of twist on things and yeah. make it a bit different. And there's no real winners and losers <laughs> no. in this story. Like it's you know the parents they lost they're, yeah. they're going to probably go to jail as well that's why yeah, they, yeah, but that's yeah. I guess they figured you know it might in the real world possibly they would have rang the cops mm. like straight away but you know they've lost I, everything I was, so yeah. they're, yeah, they're just they're just turning to revenge is the only way to yeah, get I was surprised they didn't do like a little postscript they had the little um, thing at the beginning saying based on a true story and yes. all that. But I'm surprised they didn't do a thing at the end saying uh, Mr. and Mrs. So-and-so went to jail yeah, and yeah, yeah. murder and, and mm. blah, blah, blah. And they just what crashed, they, crashed they did straight they, into the Because they, they've been caught by the cults yeah. slaughtering these people. Yes. And they're like, they're, there's no justice. There's no such thing as eye for an eye no, in no, the courts. Right. No, no, well, it's no, not law. Yeah, yeah. That's it. You know, that's it doesn't it. really look like self-defense when you no, bit it's, some it's guy's dick off. Revenge, <laughs> dick yeah. off. Yeah. And then you, Slip and the throat then you, of another woman. And, and then, then you witness the guy running another guy through <laughs> with a chainsaw. So it just who is the monsters? No. Oh, and, and that's the thing. And that was partly what uh, uh, attracted to Wes to writing the script is. Mm. is what it takes for you know a, a regular Joe Bloggs to yeah. to flip yeah, exactly. and become violent, you know um, people were being um, just leading up to when the movie came out, uh, they were impacted with the, what they were seeing in Vietnam and on the mm. on the news um, at the time and how real and gritty and bloody it was, um, and he was aware that there was nothing like that in film, no. and that's what he wanted to explore this kind of violence you know and, and the impact it was having well, that people have done it since as well like yeah, you've got yeah. your eye for an eye with um, Sally Fields and it's all yeah, justified yeah. it's like yeah. you know the Grisham novel time to kill it's yes. like no there's no such fucking time to kill <laughs> <laughs> you kill someone you've murdered someone yeah that's right that's right, all right well let, let, let's quickly kind of crack through the uh, the other people that make it up just mm. to kind of give give them a bit of background so the other female uh, well female character being Felice played by Lucy Grantham uh, again most notable uh, for playing Last House on the Left um, she claimed in an interview that the uh, scene where she pisses her pants that um, she was actually um, she actually genuinely urinated in her jeans um, but this kind of contradicts like a movie uh, book that was released by David Salkin um, on the making of the film which states that there was a, a wet makeup sponge that was concealed in her jeans so who knows what what the history of it I did was wonder there. about that actually well, yeah. the jeans are held in a museum somewhere I'm sure <laughs> well, you're gonna I think somebody needs sniff to test. do the sniff test <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure they're awesome. in the Smithsonian <laughs> um, cool and then we get um, let's look at uh, Krug he's played by David Hess like, like he was a more of a songwriter kind of background to his kind of career he even wrote the uh, the score to to the uh, oh, cool. to the film. Right. So all that kind of like very folky music uh, you hear is here. Yeah, okay. Um, I wonder why okay. it seems so fucking out of place. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Oh, yeah. Well, they basically <laughs> kind of like where's and or kind of I can't remember which one it was now have basically learned that he wrote and they needed somebody to do the music. To the like, score. Do you yeah. want to do this? And they were like, Yeah, right. As long as it's upbeat. Um, yeah, yeah. It's <laughs> like the theme tune to um, the leftovers now. 
they got this weird fiend tune to the leftovers. Dark, dark show, but this yeah. completely oh, yeah. like. Yeah, that's right. It's kind of threw you off. Yeah, threw you off after the first season. I know. It's just so bleak. Um, yeah, so yeah, so basically, as I said, he did uh, more of a music background, and then um, he actually, um, you know, what did he, he got a, a won a Grammy for a rock opera of the Naked Carmen as well. So like he did, a, he did a lot of music. Apparently, he wrote for um, Elvis Presley as well, um, and things like that. So, um, but you know, the character of Krug, as I said, was uh, you know he was actually loosely, uh, apparently, according to Craven, was actually based on his father. And Junior, the character Junior was a bit of a reflection of himself. And it's that kind of absentee kind of father figure because, you know, he died when he was really young. Um, and um, But David, as I said, would um, would distance himself deliberately between takes. And this added to this kind of sinister nature he had with the girls. I actually quite liked his performance in this. He was good. He's young, he's quite charismatic, yeah. and like he looks quite, you know, on camera, he looked really good. He, he, he um, fit this psychopath. Yeah, stereotype, I think so. You know. Um, and then we get move on to uh, Fred Weasel Wazowski, who's uh, you know played by Fred J Lincoln. Now this guy um, was very much in the porn industry through and through, <laughs> um, and uh, you know he was he was synonymous for you know being a you know, he directed, produced, and starred in a lot of adult movies. Um, and at the time of shooting Last House on the Left, he was probably the most experienced in front of the camera too. And there was points where he was actually directing the camera to follow uh-huh. him, like he would indicate for the camera to follow him as he was running through the woods for instance yeah. um, because he knew that was the way to kind of capture it um, and um, he, he's uh, like actually David as well um, neither of them are with us anymore they passed on over the last kind of couple of years um, but interestingly like, to his credits as well Lincoln would write direct and appear in a hardcore picture that was called The Last Whole House on the Left which I think is <laughs> genius <laughs> um so just um, also touching on the, some of the other characters we've got Sadie who was played by Jeremy Rain um, she only really kind of appeared in like these early early movies I think she did about three movies all up um, you know this one probably the most again most prominent um, she was also in another another movie um, called The Abductors and another one called Preacher Man Meets Widow Woman um, she actually um probably outside of the, uh, the film industry she was actually most probably known for actually um, having married uh, Richard Dreyfus and had three children with him uh, oh. prior to divorcing him in 1995 huh. um, she now kind of works as a producer and scriptwriter for daytime television programs in, in LA wow. um, when she got picked for the role of this she was actually currently playing uh, in a in a play uh, which was about the killing of Susan Tate as well, mm. so kind of, I think that's probably why they mm. caught her eye mm. and her, her behaviour in it. And you know, again, really kind of interesting character that she played in it. You know, I found what's interesting about her was the character. Her character is seeing a female in that position of you know of brutality and kind of going along, and, and she's the one that pulls out the intestines as well. Yeah, and there's this look she's of good. Like, glee. Yeah, very unhinged. Mm. She seemed like one of the. Oh, I could see her playing one of the Manson family. Yeah, like, yeah. Like Linda Kasabian. Yeah, yeah, that's yeah. right. Yeah, it's or a honey, like a honey bunny from Pulp <laughs> yeah, Fiction. Yeah, 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 that's it. Yeah, and that's, that's good. <clears throat> and then we get um, to, to round out the kind of the the villains of the piece. Junior, played by Mark Scheffler. Um, this was only his real, only on screen, um, you know, picture that he ever did. But he's kind of gone on to being behind the camera. You know, he's done a lot of um, writing for television and production rather than acting. 
Um, his credits kind of include episodes of Sister Sister, Harry and the Hendersons, Who's the Boss, and Charles in Charge. Oh, um, yeah, um, he also was involved in a lot of like pilots and like made for TV movies, and you know, including TV special, including the Happy Days reunion special. Wow! Um, so there you go. That's his his um, role. I kind of liked him too. And this, like, but what stood out for me, and I think this is mentioned in the commentary, is that he does a really good frog impression. You know, seen in the bathroom. Yeah. You reckon they just put that in there because they heard him off camera doing the frog doing thing? Frog. I, like, I, like, again, I think it was improvised as well. Like yeah. it's all kind of played up. But yeah. yeah, I just found that I was like, he's really good. Um, then uh, the last kind of uh, characters. If you'd like just... to ring in, <laughs> give us your best frog impression. Do do. Paul's always impressed by that. Yeah. I am impressed by frogs. He loves a good frog. Yeah. Um, so just rounding out the the minor characters, then we've got. Um, John, um, the father, who's played by Richard Towers, he's credited in this as Gaylord St. James. I love that name. <laughs> Gaylord St. James! Quite where he got that name from, I have no idea. There was already this kind he of... He is the Lord of Gays! <laughs> Just imagine that action figure on the shelf with the chainsaw. Just like, Gaylord St. James. The Lord of Gays! That's it. I don't know. It's a, it's a bizarre, <laughs> bizarre choice. Yeah. Um, look, he was a look. He was you know, again known mainly for this film, but he was in a couple of other stuff. I think he was like in a lot of soaps and stuff as well, which I have seen him before. But adds I adds to like he when, looks a bit like Richard Vernon. So yeah, he does. Yeah. That's true. And then his partner in in the movie um, Estelle is played by Cynthia Carr. Um, she's pr- she's again only ever done this too. I found her acting awful, and I don't mean. Terrible. She was the worst. That the worst. scene by the lake was just fucking awful. Oh man, so like, so bad. Oh, uh. she's dead. <laughs> and you're just, oh, oh my girl. And it's like, fuck. Yeah, I found, <laughs> and apparently, like both Hess, Schiffler, and Lincoln didn't really rate her much as an actress either. According to yeah, the well, I'm sure. Gave her a great blowy. Yeah, he did. <laughs> well, like I think that she she got the role because she was actually she actually knew. Fred Lincoln. What are you going to say? <laughs> Not from blowing. But the scene with the uh, the scene with the biting of the dick off too. What uh, Fred Fred Lincoln, who's the guy who's having his dick bitten off, yeah. um, he actually stuck his belt through his the zip on his flies, and that's what she bites onto and starts shaking around oh. on. And he, he suggested that because he said it will look convincing if you were actually oh, biting cool. onto something. Well, he would know. Yeah, pretty cool. And then uh, and then just don't uh, mention. Like the Ada Washington is in it, who's like she's the lady that's driving driving the car <laughs> with the that. chickens on the back. Yeah, right. She she was actually um, she's not an actress. Driving she she she's yeah. actually um, she was actually uh, Sean Cunningham's uh, uh, his family's maid and nanny. Oh right. And they just cast her because they needed some random Too person. And if you notice, she's just laughing lady. her head off. Yeah, in the movie. That's right. <laughs> yeah, hilarious. <laughs> Um, and then we get the cop characters. So we've got Sheriff, who's played by Marshall Anker. He's probably best known for his again his work on uh, Last House on the Left. Um, he was also in a movie called Forbidden Under Censorship of the King, and Return. Yeah, and like they're the comic comedy element. Mm. Importantly, though, or maybe not importantly, but if That's you recognise the face of the deputy, he's Martin Cove, who um, was known as uh, Karate Kid. Yeah, uh, Sensei. Um, yes, but he was also in, and I didn't realise this until I was, yeah, Cagney and Lacey. Yeah, but he was in. Um, he was also in Death Race Two Thousand. Oh yeah, that's right. Uh, playing Nero the Hero. Yeah, uh, and I was like, wow. And he, um, was, he was big in the eighties. Yeah, yeah, huge. And he was in uh, Rambo: First Blood Part Two. Oh, that's right. Yeah. Um, uh, and a bunch of oh, have I got this? Yeah. Uh, but as I said, most probably known for a Karate Kid. 
Um, and he, as he was in all three of those movies. Um, That's right, he came back so in the third England, one, didn't he? C- Cagney yeah. and Lacey was massive. So yeah. I remember him from Cagney and Lacey enormously. That's right. And Because um, it was like a regular <laughs> role in it. That's and, it. Um, it was one of the cops at the station. So when he appeared in Karate Kid, I was like, fuck, this is the dude from Cagney and Lacey. The last thing I just want to add on, on uh, Martin Cove, it was actually him that recommended David Hess to Craven as well to oh, play the crude okay. character. Um, and um, there's quite a fa- in famous, uh, not famous, uh, an incident where he was running late to the to the to the movie, uh, to the auditions and you know he got stuck in traffic. This is David Hess, by the way, um, and it was like sweltering heat, and he kind of basically bursts into the room and goes, "Right, where do you want me?" And it's just that alone that they went, "Oh, this guy's interesting." Yeah, <laughs> make an impression. Man. Yeah, 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 absolutely. So that pretty much kind of rounds up all the all the people that um, that had a, a a part to play in it. And I, I guess actually, what I haven't spoken about is. Um, Obviously, we mentioned it briefly, but Sean Cunningham yeah. um, was was um, involved, and Steve Miner, and Steve Miner as well. So, like, um, both uh, had a lot to play with the Friday the Thirteenth mm-hmm. franchise, which I'm really, really keen to explore a bit further down the track. But we'll keep you posted on that one. Um, um, but interesting, like those three people in particular, had, you know, were collaborating at a very early stage, and they all went off in their own right to have their own kind of careers. Um, within the industry um, but let's look at the um, I want to kind of have a section on these podcasts where we look at the shock factor um, element of them of you know which is what you kind of come to expect when horror movies some kind of overdo it some under underplay it um, but let's let's look at the moments for me there was one moment with the, uh, the, the kind of first ever instance that we've seen of Wes Craven do the shock cut you know where um, yeah, it's where um, David Hess's crew character um, comes out and approaches Felice's character and it's the, basically it's just the machete kind of drawn out close like so you've got Felice in the background machete revealed in the front ground and you get the music kind of chord, very typical kind of user music device to kind of have the shock factor kind of amplified mm. um, and that was the first instance that we've, we've seen him obviously this is his first movie but where we kind of um, see that kind of uh, in a, a horror venue um particularly with Wes Craven behind the, behind the helm. Um, what, what, what do you think of those kind of moments? Like, you know, do, do you know the kind of moments I'm talking about where it's always like a quick cut, something jumps in front of the, in the foreground of the screen with a bit of a music? Yeah, well, the quick, um, stabby sort of yeah, yeah. things. I'm not usually a fan of those mm. type of Thing, devices. It's it's easy shock, isn't yeah. it? It's the way to kind of. Um, it's usually the one. That, you know, that's usually the, the time that my wife leaves the room. She, watch, <laughs> she, she always says, I, "I hate horror films," but I can get her to sit there and watch a horror film. And as soon as there's the jump factor, yeah, she's just like, "No, I just I'm just not interested." And she walks out of the room. Right. Like, Who are we watching? Uh, the Gift. Oh uh, yes. The Joel Edgerton um, directed film. Oh um, yeah, I'm not saying that. Yeah, 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 sorry. That. And yeah. there's just a couple of moments midway that there's, there's sort of like two scenes where it just it jumps, the, the the shock jump, and and she just got up and just went, no, that's it, I've had enough, I can't deal with it anymore. <laughs> it's like, it was like, and then I, I saw her the next day, like she went to bed, and I said, I said the rest of the film wasn't like that. 
But you, no. you kind of, you know, and I it, it just, almost spoils the. Yeah, the, uh, that's what uh, I think. I think it's, it's, as I said, I think it's a, it's a very quick and cheap way of making the mm. audience jump in a movie. Well, yeah, you, ex- you expect it oh, all yeah, the way yeah. through. Yeah. So, yeah. But you do it's expect it with the genre. Like, mm. I'm almost disappointed when it doesn't happen sometimes. <laughs> but the ghost stuff, I like it when it does. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Then, but. Yeah, yeah, that's true. Mm-hmm. I, th- I didn't get it once in this film, though, to be honest. I, I didn't have that reaction. I think a no. lot of that just has to do with the, the way it's shot. It's very rough around the edges. Yeah, yeah. yeah. But yeah. Are you right, you can see him heading down that That dream that sequence, road. for instance. That was just... Ah, uh, yeah, that's right. Right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That was like, very... That was almost, like, hostel-like, you know? It was kind of like... Torch torch. Torch. Yeah, it really was. That's yeah. right. Yeah. Way before, you know? Yeah. Um, Just the chisel on the... Oh. You know, nothing really happened. Like... So, I, know, you know, I always wanted to see that. You're like, ah, oh, no! <laughs> so one of the... Uh, what's interesting about that, and I kind of alluded to that earlier when we were talking about it, is, like, this is the first indication that of Wes Craven's fascination with dreams and mm. nightmares. Um, and one of the most uh, popular nightmares, or most common nightmares, I should say, is uh, the thought of losing one's teeth. Um, um, so it's kind of interesting that that's the thing that's uh, played on within this movie. Was he a, was he into Freud effectively? Well, he studied or? psychology, oh. majored in it, um, and in, and English. Yeah. That was like his kind of four four. So I there's interesting that these. Uh, these uh, uh, subjects come up quite often in his movies, when, and we'll explore those as we go through them. I guess if you're going to so. be a horror director, you really got to know what is the deep core of, like, what actually scares humans mm. at their very core. Yeah, like the animalistic kind. And, um, and I think I, I once saw a, um, a documentary. I think it was called Masters of Horror or something. It was. Um, Stevie King was was talking about the different stages of what scared him over his life. Oh, okay. And he sort of said, "Oh, you know, it was it was always the uh, when he was a teenager, it was the the, the body and the sort of um, the, the teeth, the the sex scared him. Yeah. And all these sort of initial sort of superficial sort of stuff that immediately affect children and, and teenagers. Yes. And then as he became a father, it was like the loss of his children was the scariest thing. Oh, sure, well. yeah, like, yeah. You know, and being powerless to... to uh, as he grew older, it was like growing power, more and more powerless to, to, to protect himself. Yeah, and yeah. his own children. Wow. And, so uh, that, yeah, all that, was, that's all going into the source material that he's... Yeah, or that's like being funneled into the work that he yeah, was doing at yeah, that time. Sure. Yeah, sure. Over the years, you see that. Like, you see him and Carrie, mm-hmm. like, it's all about that sort of initial embarrassment of being a teenager and yeah. the awkwardness of it all. And then towards, you know, you get into more and more into it. And, oh, there's Christine as well. Christine, and, yeah. And then yeah. More, more and more, as his, his novels get more and more adult, yeah. they talk about different yeah, yeah. About what scare people? So I think that's 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 yeah. uh, that's natural, isn't it? Like authors or writers or screenwriters will always draw from their own kind of uh, events in life mm. and what what yeah, shapes well, them. Because I mean, and that's it's mm. funny because that ended up being like his the film that he's most remembered by is mm. the nightmare films that he made yeah. later on. Yeah. That's right. And obviously, that's an area that he's well versed and he's channeling his subconscious. And, in some way, I'm sure that scene in this film was almost like he's just—he knew it was in his subconscious there yeah, somewhere. Yeah. So just to get yeah. it in there, and and also the, the, the not being able to protect 
this child as well. So yes. Tell you a bit of an older director as well. Yes. Like, what was he in his thirties when he? Did yeah, he would have been. There was a bit because he um, came into it like yeah. a lot older than. So um, and he's he said he was married and he had uh, he a had daughter. A, he had a son and a daughter. Yeah. So he's obviously yeah. he's has that thing of I'm a I'm a father now and I, you know, what if I can't protect my children and yes, this is just at the core of every parent basically. This is a good point for me to talk about his son, Jonathan Craven. Mm. He's actually in this movie. Um, he's the kid who's standing oh, at the yeah. doorway who has his yeah. b- balloon burst by Krug as they walk past him. Oh, uh, yeah, it's yeah. quick. Yeah. Um, and, uh, you know, Craven's also gone into, or started going into kind of writing um, for movies too, so mm. following in his father's okay. footsteps a little bit. Um, so the, the other kind of areas, obviously there's a lot of, um, it's all the sexual kind of re- related mm. uh, shock factor moments. Um, we kind of spoke about them, so I don't know if we want to go into too much detail beyond what we've already discussed. Um, you've got the uh, the, the uh, copulation scene between Mary and Felice, where they're forced upon each other, and I, and I mentioned that you know she was generally kind of mm. scared scared in that moment, um, and uh, and Felice uh, um, is talking her through it, um, and that's all kind of improvised, but you know, which makes it even more real, and and the same with the rape scene that happens. You know, mm. later on too, um, we've kind of spoken about those. But is there anything else that you'd like to add to those particular kind of? I think the, scenes? I mean, the racing really kind of. You know, I kept thinking about the um, the remake. Yeah. And the remake is so brutal, but yeah. the brutality in this was that just that one shot of, of yeah. a slavering face against her face. That's right. Mary's face and Mary's face, and and that was as, as brutal as it pretty much gone yeah and um, and he didn't see anything it was just two faces right next to each other no that's right mm. yeah, yeah I think it was that strip maybe it was that strip back approach that mm. made it even more disturbing actually it's, it's, it's the not... whole Spielberg Jaws thing isn't yeah it? that's so true what you don't that's see true. can be all, all yeah. like even scarier very much so yeah I don't think all of the I don't think every single moment that he probably wanted to shock is as, as effective and I mean again, again mm. it's kind of like it being his first film, he would kind of would perfect that over time. Yeah. But there are certain moments that, I mean, I think the first, the very first scene where they're kidnapped in the house, and and the first the first rape scene that kind of occurs, I took a moment to even realise what was actually happening. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. It sort of just disappeared out of frame. Yeah. Uh, and it doesn't. It just doesn't. Ha- and I think a lot of that has to do with the score. I think the score at the time. Yeah. Like all the whatever music's being played at that particular. And it's also time. the setting as well. Like the the room is just. Yeah. It's just a room and it's, That's true. And it's brightly lit. It is, yeah, there's yeah, no, yeah. So there's really no, no nothing. Yeah. It's when they take it out into the forest, into nature, yeah. you kind of get a bit more anything can happen. Yeah, yeah. The, the wild of nature. I know, and I guess the animalistic. The wild of nature as well. Yeah. So, so, so I, think, I think it was uneven, like, the, mm. but I, I think definitely as it goes on, it gets more effective. Mm. And even even that it reflects in the music as well because it does get, does get synthy for a little moment there. There is kind of. Yeah, which is very odd, kind of in keeping with the times. The music's very kind That's of that seventies. Right, yeah. You know. yeah. yeah. Um, so, so the last kind of real, I guess, shock scene is is the fellatio scene, yeah. um, where uh, you know Weasel gets his cock bitten off. Um, it, like, are, are we? Well, what do I want to say? Like, are we? Um, are we conditioned to seeing that being on screen now? Do you think? I think so. so you know, you know what I found that I think I mentioned it before was. The, the the worst uh, I think it got a bit 
I was on my edge of my seat anyway when I was um, uh, watching the revenge scenes. Uh, yes. Because you didn't know which way it was going to go. Yes. And, I mean, the biting of the cock was like, oh, well, that, that's, I've seen that done a million times before. But yeah. But just the, the father and um, Kruger just, uh, just going at it. Yeah. And you just really weren't sure who was going to come out on top. That's right. Because what's interesting is that the, uh, the father character, um, Gaylord, I've forgotten his real name, but his, his actor, actor named Gaylord, um, he's, he's actually quite a big bloke, yeah. you know, and against yeah. Krug, like, like mm. could probably match him, but uh, there was something a, a bit interesting about the way he, they played that, because he does come across a bit clumsy. He's supposed to be a doctor, mm. he's not really meant to be. He's not a fighter, and he's not no. a, like a, a rapist or a murderer. Or no, a robber, that's right. He's not that's in right. that scene, but the Krug is. It's yeah, interesting it's how they keep you in the dark about their actual plan. Like, I'm just imagining this silly yeah. scene where they're discussing their plan. It's like, oh, yeah, okay, now you bite his cock off. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and then if all else fails, I'll go for the chainsaw. Yeah, yeah, that's right. We've got it downstairs. I'm sure the petrol's still running. It's just like, you know, yeah. but I have, you have to bite his cock off. Otherwise, this plan is Oh, so good. All right, look, um, let, let's move into just talking about which I'm going to call the director's note. So this is where we kind of look specifically about the director in question that we're, we're looking at. In this case, obviously, Wes Craven. Um, and just give a bit of background and maybe if you guys want to add stuff um, along the way. So, look, the, the movie itself is a re-envisioning of The Virgin Spring by Ingmar Bergman. Um, so a very kind of similar thing where it's, it's set, this time it's set in a farm, there's a, there is a rape scene and, and the parents' revenge. Um, obviously, in this instance, it's it's more kind of um, explicitly exacted on on the uh, would be um, criminals in in this particular movie. Um, as I mentioned before, earlier in the podcast, Craven was influenced by the doco style storytelling that he'd seen in previous you know editing jobs, and and also the, there's lots of references to the visual elements that was coming out with Vietnam um, prior to this movie coming out. Uh, and the horrifying images that was subject upon you know, the American nations. Um, um, the, I just wanted to also add that the budget of the film was, was 90k, so it was quite fairly low, and we kind of knew that anyway because of the way it was shot. Um, I did mention this as well earlier, but there was no permits for the film at all, and so a lot of the shots that we see, the scenes that we shot, that we, sorry, I'll say that again, a lot of the scenes that were shot were actually done illegally and on the fly. Mm. Which is kind of very typical of anyone that started up. Totally, and you yeah. just imagine like just just someone taking their dog for a walk and just <laughs> yeah. passing by the rape the rape scene, <laughs> and they just yeah. keep on walking. I don't imagine they would have required a great deal of permits anyway. No, like I mean, most of it was filmed around what Sean Cunningham's yeah. parents' property, yeah. which is obviously like um, uh, what's his name, Jonathan Levine did that with all the boys. Love Mandy Lane. Yeah. He basically had a friend of his that just yeah. uh, said, I'll use um, Hillary Duff's place. Yes. And so <laughs> that's all filmed around Hillary Duff's like, wow, family okay. home or somewhere. Yeah, far out. And so they, they just basically find a chunk of land and they go, right, let's, let's just film a horror film here. <laughs> we don't need any permits. That's we can do whatever the hell we like. And we yeah. just run around and we've got a bunch of different made-up sets already. So That's why horror films just work so well. Mm. I mean, the low-budget thing you can get away with. Yeah. Because you almost... It's not important in the script. I'm sure he wasn't, you know, 
strict about where exactly the locations were. Yeah. Oh, no, no, it's so totally. just grabbed the camera and ran for it. Like, yeah. Oh, there's something cool over here. There's a graveyard over here. There's yeah, a graveyard yeah. over here. That's, that's <laughs> I almost exactly. wonder, because there's a, that scene where she does get stabbed in the graveyard, like, the truck goes past at one point. Yeah. I'm just wondering whether that was just yeah, a random, you, a random you car. See a, you see a truck driving past. Yeah. And, and you go... The, the, I'd be what? surprised. I'd be surprised if that was like that was like the, the you know the, the VW in Ben Hur for me. <laughs> <laughs> yes, absolutely. The um, yeah. So look, um, it, you're right. I, I do want to add as well that what the the inter- the interior shots. I don't know if I've written in my notes, but the interior shots was actually I think it was a friend of theirs that was renting out a property. So they never actually told the owners. Mm. That they were shooting in there, and you know, obviously, they everything that gets damaged in it got damaged. And like the door where you know, the chainsaw goes through the door, yeah. they actually had to replace the door because you know, it's not there probably to, yeah. to damage. So, yeah, interesting things there. Um, you're right that it was shot in uh, Westport, Connecticut, which is where Cunningham grew up, it was his kind of hometown. Um, it was shot on a converted Super 16 camera, which they blew up to 35 for release. Um, as I said, a lot of the scenes were improvised and, and some, in some cases re-recorded due to poor audio quality. Um, one of the um, instances of that was in the ice cream shop, um, you know, that they go in and they're talking around because they, they didn't expect it to be so noisy inside it. And so, you know, it's learning curves. Um, and so that's the car I'm, as well, the driving yeah. car, you can see it's badly dubbed. Yeah, yeah. It's way yeah. out of sync. So that's why it was because of when it was shot. Yeah. Um, uh, Wedge Craven wanted to show violence as it was um, and, you know, how humanity is revealed in the humans putting uh, the moral compass into question in doing so, you know, what would happen with faced with violence and how they react to that. And I think that is, if anything, uh, what makes this film so good. Um, and he also believed, the, you, know, the, you know, as I said, the, the, the potential for violence that can be depicted in anyone. Um, it was designed also not to cut away. So when we see those shots, like with the rape scene as well, it's very similar to, and we see it in a more glorified um, uh, version of it in the Irreversible, mm. where it, it's just very still and static, and yeah. the same kind of thing is happening here. Um, although while we, like thirty odd years earlier, yeah, maybe more so. Um, and um, he, he's even said that he's never gone back to films as dark as this particular one again. So bear in mind that he's done a lot of dark films, he yeah. does view this one as being quite a dark subject matter. Mm-hmm. Um, I guess with the, his other ones, he plays on Supernatural, so it's easy yeah, to yeah, yeah, a it's detachment um, from realism by putting that Supernatural element in yeah, there. Yeah. And so this one is, is fully about the horror of humankind, basically. Yeah, yeah. That's right. I mean, Hills of Ice sort of it gets into that, but with more of the, the after-effects of yes. science and... and yes. And, um, yeah, which we'll, we'll go into yeah. films. Yeah, but obviously they're more monsters and yeah, like yeah, they're vicious. created monsters basically yeah. by humankind. But they, these are just degenerate humans. Yeah. yeah, and the horror is the fact that they actually just they exist. That's mm. right. That's right. And I think uh, even David Hess said that like, it's interesting that um, with his you know uh, with a lot of uh, uh, movies that's come after that is always the mask mm. you know the, the villain is always masked in some way you know yeah. we see it with Jason Voorhees and Michael Myers and um, whereas with Krug he is a, a guy who's just a f- fucked up and you know he said um, you know he takes pride in the fact that you know he's he was the, the original villain that was you know didn't have to be masked for it you know he was 
humanity revealed. It's funny though, because you do see that, um, talk about the mask and stuff, is, mm. is that for the next 20 or 30 years, the mask gets put back on. Yeah. And with Friday the 13th and the Jasons and then the monsters and the vampires and all those yeah, things. Yeah, yeah. And it only really comes back off again when Silence of the Lambs come out, comes out. And so you see the serial yeah. killers and all everything comes out and it's all serial killers. Yeah, yeah, that's serial true. Serial killers exist within you, within every society. Yeah. Um, and that's and right. I remember doing an I did an essay about the resurgence of the new the new monsters basically, which mm-hmm. is us. Yeah. And uh, suburbia is the the monsters, um, you know, hunting yeah. ground. That's and right. So yeah, it's, it's quite interesting because this was like definitely just an anomaly in. Progression of yeah. monster movies, basically. I think that kind of came about, though, didn't it? Like with more and more um, with serial killers in particular, mm. that how um, you know every, the the image of the serial killer is this kind of really dark and disturbed figure lurking like in the shadows. Yeah. And now you know, as it comes out, you get yeah. the Jeffrey Dahmers and mm. people like that, that, and Ted Bundy's, and they are like they look just like an, an yeah. everyday person. And it just really kind of brings home how how fucked up humans can be. Yeah. You know, so yeah, and it's, and it's debatable as to which is more like which is scarier. You know, yeah. Is it the unknown? Is it the unknown person? But you fill in the blanks if they're wearing a mask, whereas if it's natural face. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. That's it. That's it. Um, so um, uh, so just oh so the original screenplay that uh, Craven worked on was actually a lot darker and, and more sexually explicit. Um, and uh, the actors, it was the actors who thought the movie was good enough without the sexuality. So where's actually stripped all that out. Um, so what remains is, is the violent side of it rather than the sexual nature that's, that was in there. Well, that's movie. America, isn't it? They yeah. got that. What, what's the Jack Nicholson quote? Uh, uh, kiss a tit and get an R rating, uh, hack it off and get a PG. Yeah, yeah. Uh, oh, yeah, for sure. Yeah. Absolutely, absolutely. Um, so some of the cast members have claimed that there was an absence of directing on set. So this is views of the cast with Craven. Well, um, kind of, that kind of goes to what, it's, what we're talking about before. Yeah, you know, that's right. Loose and and it, it was Lincoln in particular has said that he was often telling Craven to get more close-ups. So then, you remember I said that he was the one that was kind of almost indicating the camera had to follow yeah. him when he's running through. But he yeah. was also kind of saying, you need a close-up here. Because like, there's a lot of shots from background. And it's like... You, know, you listen to the commentary and he goes what the fuck's going on here you know like just a random shot of, a, of the woods and like it takes forever for me to run there's run that to... shot again yeah yeah exactly and he's just like oh that's that hilarious that shot appears about three times yeah 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 <laughs> that's very funny um, so um, but in a way that that helps the movie because it does kind of you know really ground it again in this natural environment mm. and that this stuff's going on in, in mm. this very kind of um, very natural place um, what else do I want to add? Um, so Craven was always willing to push the actors, though, and often encourages them to kind of explore and let, let it out more, which was why I think some of the areas that we discussed before kind of moved into that kind of unsafe territory. Um, and I kind of think I commend him for that, because I, I kind of identify with that, you know, in, in trying to get the best out of the actors, which I thought was cool. Um, Craven and Cunningham would, um, you know, would often ask themselves while they were shooting whether audience had ever seen this before. So they were always testing themselves as well when they were, on, you know, going around shooting stuff. Um, now we kind of glossed over it when we were talking about it about the cops stuff because it was all that kind of, you know, 
stupid stuff. And they're like, Craven has admitted that the splicing of humour and the cops with the drama elements, you know, sometimes it paid off, but most of the time didn't. Yeah. Um, so he's kind of openly kind of admitted that, yeah, that was, that yeah, didn't kind of work. Yeah, where it's coming from. Like, yeah. you've got to have that. It's that, that yeah. comedy element. It gives the comic relief after the scares. And it's always yeah. like, you know, every, you go to the movies and, and, and you watch a scary film and you're like, <gasps> oh my God! <laughs> <laughs> so it has that sort of after of course, effect, but yeah. I just think it, it just felt yeah. in this case it felt like it was from a it different film. Like it, it did feel like it. Well. It was almost like I felt like it was almost like a Lauren Hardy kind of, mm. um, you know, yeah, it was. It had that kind of element to it. Just fumbling around, trying to climb up on top of a van mm. and then being thrown off. Yeah, yeah, like yeah. A, a good example of that it being stupid. used properly is probably the characters that Tarantino seems to bring back in yeah. his, um, yeah, yeah, you yeah. know, he brings them back in uh, the Dust or Dawn and yeah, and. Um, Obviously, in Kill Bill, yes. the father-son sheriff, mm. sheriff. Oh, that's combo. right. Yes, yes. And like um, in you know in Scream with Dewey, he was the comic element, you know, but he was actually he was he was earnest about it. He was yeah. dead set earnest about trying to catch these. Yeah. And yeah. I got that this that was a precursor to to um, with these guys that were precursor to Dewey almost. Yeah, um, yeah. yeah. I was just thinking that bumbling mm-hmm. kind of, but yeah, 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 Dewey was believable in the way that, it, like, he went about his business. He believed he was, you know, yeah. he wanted to do a good job, but he, he just did. wasn't quite. Well, he was, yeah, because he would bumble along, and then he would just go serious. <laughs> yeah, <that's laughs> and that was like, which was the funnier part? Yeah, yeah. Whereas this would just, you, you had them bumbling along, and then every so often there was just a moment that you kind of went, especially at the end where they catch the catch him about to. Chainsaw the guy, yes, uh, Krug, and, and they're going, No, don't you know, and yeah. that's when it kicks into serious, yeah, that's right, Damn. that's right. But they should have had more of those obvious, they're, they're there to catch and to look after these people, yeah, yeah. They didn't um, seem to be, yeah, they're they're very... rather than fucking around, <laughs> yeah, they just yeah, rammed it around, like, yeah, yeah. Um, okay, so, um, obviously, the uh, after filming The Last House on the Left, both Craven and Cunningham were victimised by the success of the film as we mentioned there's a lot of reactions to, to the movie but the ironically with the success of that they then got pigeonholed into the horror genre mm-hmm. um, and people would often react when meeting them because they made this fucked up film mm-hmm. um, but it then you know it spawned great careers for both yeah. of them you know so it's um, they it's got a lot of fame for uh, getting shoved into horror yeah 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 um, and so like, the last couple of things is just a couple of quotes from Craven on the movie he said the success of the film comes from the fact that it doesn't blink and it's that whole thing as I said that he doesn't want to pull away or you know from it he just kept he's always from the get go he was like I want to show it for what it is I want to show violence for what it is and I think we can agree that it does do that um, and then the last quote was that he says either I'm a very sick bastard or I started something people didn't want to be shown in response to how people reacted so yeah, you know, starkly to it. Um, but you know, that's his comments on it. What, what were our thoughts overall? So, um, Ben, Ben, what was your overall verdict? Yeah, like like I said before, I think it's because it's his first film and it's a little bit rough around the edges. I, th- I think it's a overall. I find I found it a little disjointed, just in tone. Yeah. Between, especially with the the parents, um, I don't think I don't think their performances were quite. Oh quite spot on for what grieving parents should be acting like yeah yeah um but it, there definitely is some scenes that surprise me like the the scene where she um you know wades into the lake and it is just shot 
Yeah. And I think I think there's no music in that moment. It's just that actual scene made me sit up, and I think from there on, yeah, it kind of has a stronger ending than than the, the beginning. Yeah. Um, but overall, I don't think I'll, I don't think I sounds like I probably didn't like it quite as much as as the both of you, but I think that's probably just once again me coming to it from a modern yeah, film yeah. perspective and just. Which is why you're here, Ben. That's why you're exactly. here on the podcast. It's an education. That's it. Um, but yeah, it's that. Uh, you know, I think we're just used to things being a lot more stylish and precise, yeah. and um, like I think it very much is a film of its time. Yes. And I'm just. I agree. I just. With, I think I'm just going to have to try with 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 films of this of this era to remember how shocking it would have been at that time. Yeah. Um, so yeah, that pretty much sums up. Most people, because this then ended up on video and it became yeah. quite massive on video. Yeah. Video Most people had never seen anything like this. I was banned as well. It was banned in the UK. It was banned in the UK and yeah, maybe Canada, that's why yeah. I never saw it. Because yeah. like, I only saw, uh, saw this for the first time the other day. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I mean, a lot of people had access to it for the first time that's years like, later yeah. on video. So it became probably more successful on video later. That's right. And, yeah. and so, you know... Previously, they hadn't had the cheesy horrors on them on TV, or if they were old enough, you know, they, yeah. they could go and see it at a like grindhouse or something. Mm. Or, yeah. Um, but um, yeah, I, I, you know, I'm a, I'm a huge fan of the Mumblecore guys, and I think they're they're doing some phenomenal work for a low, 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 low budget. Yeah. And they they are obviously huge fans of early Crave and yeah. early Steve Miner, um, Tony Hooper. And you can see like elements, and I loved. I I loved. I've never seen this film because I, I, I've seen the, 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 the remake. remake, and I've never seen the, the original because obviously it'd been banned when I was growing up, and in yeah. my heyday of watching slasher films and <laughs> horror films. And um, but yeah, this was just an absolute cracker. Yeah, I, I you could see promise. Yes, and that's what it said to me. Yeah, that's and that's mm. why I'm not surprised that it was remade. Like, mm. I can see. I like that twist of. You know the victims being knocked off in you know the first half, and then the the parents actually coming into contact with the, like that's just a great idea. Mm. Yeah. But it just I just think, didn't think it was executed to its potential in this in this film. And having not seen the remake, uh, I'm not sure whether they actually achieved that. But um, I can, I'm not oh, surprised right. it was remade at all. The remakes were really good though. I do like the remake. Yeah. I think for me, yes, it's 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 not a complete film. There are elements of it that don't work, and there. Bits that jar, uh, you, you know. I, I have to take my hat off to anyone that would just go out there and just fucking do it, and they and they yeah. did that, and you can tell. And but part of why I like this movie is because it is raw around the edges, and I I'm, yeah. I'm instinctively I'm drawn towards that in horror in particular. I don't. I'm not so. I, I kind of gravitate away from the polished stuff because I, funny enough, I tune out with it because I find it too polished. Where it becomes it's, generic. Yeah, it, and it does. it becomes this generic sort of looking horror film that you go, okay, we've been down this journey yeah. many times before. Whereas, you know, that's one of the reasons why I liked um, the Mumblecore guys with Innkeepers and Adventure yeah. and um, the VHS movies. Yeah, yeah. Um, and they just, you know, they just go, go for it. Yeah. There's, there's no fear there. And that's the thing with Craven with this one. Is it just goes, you know what, I'm making a movie... And fuck it, if it's the last one I ever do, then it's the last one yeah. I ever do. Yeah, I know. And that's exactly the approach to filmmaking that you've got to have. Yeah, I, I, but, yeah. And you could definitely see, like, obviously, this showed enough promise for him to, like, 
it was it was proof that the guy had had a knack for this, and he had a lot. You can tell there's a lot more he wants to say when you watch this film. Yeah, but yeah. He liked, so, liked it as well. I remember yeah. reading something that uh, Roger Ebert loved it. Roger Ebert was one of the yeah. the people, and like he was the Mr. Critic. You oh, know. Yeah. Um, and so he is. he's got he the, probably he bizarre taste. He probably he just did. liked it because there was tits. Let's be honest. <laughs> yeah, that's true. But they weren't big tits, not because he's a huge Russell Meyer fan. Yes. <laughs> and they were Russell Meyer was into the big big norks. That's right. That's right. <laughs> so like you know he's um, but I think that's a good point though. Like I think that earmarks how how people knew this was a definite game changer, mm. um, in the industry. And you know these were two people that started out with nothing, took a gamble on a punt. And they came out with this kind of creation, and it's something that put them on the stepping stool to greater things to come. Um, and there's lots of lots to be said about it. And I, you know, looking back at it, you know, because I had seen, I can't remember when I had seen it originally, um, but when I revisited it um, recently, um, you know, I, I think that was what struck me again was, you know, the, as I said, the rawness of it. There are some shoddy acting in it, primarily from the parents. And, uh, and uh, you know, a couple of the the, the cop, well, not the cop, the the sheriff guy wasn't too great, um, but within it, but like even like the improv stuff, I kind of I, I get a kick out of them improvising stuff, and you know, and that adds to that kind of rawness to it and this kind of energy that's given across because of it. So yeah, well, I think it was good, good mm. all round. Um, anything else that you guys want to add to it? Are you? I think I just one of the one of the things I was thinking while I was watching it was that. Tonally, it kind of reminded me a bit of Straw Dogs, like just yeah, some, yeah, some of the, the some of the, pie, yeah. but that that's that's kind of a very that's an example of um, a much more serious mm. kind of. I mean, that's not technically you couldn't technically call that a horror film. I don't think it's probably more of like a yeah. What what's that like genre? Like it's like um, a, it's, yeah, it yeah, could yeah, have essence of horror in it. It's got lots of yeah, it's suspense. It's, like you know, it's the gradual you know. There's tension throughout that film because the, it's a, the you know the the three men who end up turning pure evil. Yeah. Um, it, that, the whole film is based off that that raising tension, and also Dustin Hoffman's character mm. turning you know turning to his yeah, dark side. Yeah, yeah. Well, it's kind of what exactly. the parents do in this yeah, as well, yeah. but it's just not. And then with Straw Dogs too, it is the whole kind of home you know home invasion scenario where he yeah. turns his home into yeah. a, a defence camp you know and so that's yeah. what makes that so interesting yeah, and he's yeah. a man of principle who's standing up for he, he doesn't know whether this guy's innocent or guilty and he stands up for him regardless yeah. because he's not somebody that should be uh, you know they're, they're not the, the juries they can't take that kind of action into their own hands it has to be in front of the law Yeah, um, and that's what he stands by you know so it's, it's, I, lo- I do love that movie as an, a complete aside. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I totally get the, the references yeah, yeah. that it's you're just picking up. I thought of, but the, I mean, obviously the um, and the same locations as well, like both. Yeah, very yeah. few locations. Very. So yeah, making the most of low budget for sure. For sure. Absolutely. Um, anything else, guys? Want to? No, 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 cool. No, no. All right. Well, look, that concludes our first horror film surgery, and I think I think it's fair to say that Last House on the Left proved to be a fairly successful operation. Um, but stick around for our next procedure and uh, Wes Craven's sophomore outing, which we've kind of hinted at, uh, The Hills Have Eyes. In the meantime, that you enjoyed these discussions on Last House on the Left. Until next time, we are Miles Davies. Hello, bye. <laughs> ben Skinner. <laughs> Goodbye, hello. And your humble host, Paul Farrell. Goodbye.
You've been listening to a Surgeons of Horror podcast. Wes Craven, The Early Years, The Last House on the Left. Music supplied by Peter Nezik. For more discussions or podcasts, head over to surgeonsofhorror.com or head over to our Facebook and Twitter sites for the latest news and updates.